My peoples, my peoples, my peoples, my peoples. Welcome to Right Away Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Martin. Thank you for coming and hanging out with me today. I really appreciate it. I always say that because I really do appreciate it because there's a zillion things to be doing that you could be doing, could be watching, uh, could be partaking of, and you're taking a few minutes out of your time to listen to what I have to say. Hopefully, I say something of substance that will inspire you or get you to think. Um, Not that you need me to to get you to think, but just maybe think from a different angle or just look at something a little bit differently, change the perspective or enhance your perspective, whatever. But however I can do it positively, that's what I want to do. I text somebody this message earlier because social media is kind of it can be, I don't know, it can be a dark place sometimes. It's a lot of negativity that gets a lot of attention. And I'm, I was reminded of this quote, and I'm going to paraphrase, by Bob Marley that really hits it around the head. I'm going to paraphrase. I'm not going to say exactly how he said it, but basically you'll get the gist of what he was trying to say. He said, bad energy and bad people don't take a day off. So good energy and good people shouldn't take a day off. And so I kind of look at my role in this social media stuff is trying to not like that I'm perfect and judgmental and judging people, but I'm just trying to be positive and bring some positive inspiration through social media because there's so much negative out there and it gets all the likes, not all, but it gets a lot of, it gets a lot of following. It gets a lot of um, attention and we seem, we tend to deal with, deal with that a lot more than we do with the positive. So I'm trying to use social media in the other way. So those of us that are on a different frequency, that are trying to remain positive, that are trying to inspire people, we need to not take too many days off, you guys and ladies. Trust me, we don't need to take days off. We got to offset this madness. You know, it's pure bullshit out here. Seriously, excuse my French. But um, anyway, I thought today I would share some poetry from a book that I'm reissuing. It's called Equilibrium. And um, so I'm reissuing it, and I figured I, I, it's been a while since it's, it's kind of been out there. I changed publishing companies, so when I did that, it kind of dropped off. So I'm gonna I, now I have it with my new publishing company, and you know it can get out there and people can ex, um, experience it again. So what I was gonna do is read some poetry, but give you the backdrop to the poems, because I'm finding that a lot of times the stories behind the poems behind the poems uh, are just as interesting and sometimes more interesting. (laughs) Sometimes more interesting. This first poem is called My Planet. I was having a conversation with three guys. No, two guys and myself. um, Some years ago at an elementary school we all worked at. And one of the guys, I'm a poet. Uh, Another guy was a a media guy. He would sound and, and DJ kind of stuff, I think. And then the other guy was a visual artist. He was an artist, you know, he's a painter, really good painter. And we're all talking about our different genres. And the guy who was the painter says, you know, sometimes when I go to my planet, uh, I can I can zone out and I can really get into my, my head and I can really paint things that even surprise me. I was like, my planet, I love that. He goes to his planet. So when I got home, I'm like, I'm gonna use that title. And that's, that's where this came from. This poem is called My Planet. When I go to my planet, the sun and moon align themselves above my notepad, turn to the nearest canvas and instruct me to write. When I go to my planet, there are no lulls in activity, 
for I simply steady my hand and wait, wait for the opening to write what she shares. When I go to my planet, the audience is small yet noteworthy, consisting of a few angels and a stream of light, connecting me with a universe which favors poets residing in small places conjuring up grand ideas. When I go to my planet, it is no longer me I am responsible for. Now with the moon, sun and moon aligned, I am given the task of touching the human soul, my planet. And yeah, most, most of my poetry has a story behind it, but that one was interesting because the guy said it and right away that, that title just hit me. That title just hit me. Um, this next one is called Cool Guy. I'm one of them guys, I wasn't really a nerd in school. I wouldn't call myself a nerd. I was just quiet, uh, wasn't popular, didn't want to be popular. I um, kind of stayed to myself. I had five or six, seven or eight friends, and that was it. You know, I wasn't one of them guys that had a bunch of people around me. It just, I've never been that guy. My, my circle has always been small, always, uh, and probably will be small for the rest of my life because small doesn't, you don't encounter as many problems sometimes, but I my, in my experience has been, you know, you have a few really close friends. Everybody else is kind of like associates. <laughs> so, so that kept me out of problems and stuff. But cool guy. I was never one of them guys that everybody knew and all of that stuff. So this is the cool guy thing. Here we go. Never been a cool guy. One of those remembered by his conquests in the infernal combustible arena of non-caring. Before hurting another soul, I would non-coolly reminisce on what my own hurt left immediately behind eyes, which teared too often. Never been a cool guy, because lessons came hard and frequently. Constant reminders of a sadness I did not want to pass on. It's a cool guy. Letter to Father. I think a lot of people could speak to this one. Um... I found out about my father when I was 24. I didn't know. I, the man that was raising me, I thought he was my father. That was, a, that was a crazy situation, but I thought he was my father for all those years. My mother kept it from me. I was surprised she kept it from me. I wasn't surprised that my stepfather kept it from me, but I was surprised that my mom would keep something that important from me. But now I look back on it now, I'm sure it would have been a problem in the house had I known um, and I'm sure the hands that were laid on me when I was growing up wouldn't have been laid on me as easily had I known. So maybe it was keeping peace in the house because it wouldn't, it wouldn't have went down the way it went down had I known this man wasn't my father. And this man that I really, I, I admired him. I really did. Um, no matter how much he put me down, no, much, no matter how much I felt small around him, I still admired him. You know, I, I looked up to him. I wanted to walk, talk, and be like him. I knew I never could, but I wanted to. At that time, I really wanted to. So when I found out about my father, everything made sense. Oh, that's why he could say things, you know, my stepfather. That's why he could say the things he, he would say. You know, how could you say that you're never going to amount to anything to your own child? So all those comments that I had heard growing up, they all started to make sense. I'm like, oh, that's why, because he didn't, he wasn't invested in me. Like he was, I had a brother and a sister that two years younger than myself. Um, he wasn't invested in me like he was my brother and sister. And it showed, and it was always apparent, but I just thought something was wrong with me. I didn't think it was, 
anybody playing favoritism or anything like that. I just thought it had to be me because a father's not going to treat a son like that unless that son is, is doing something to bring on that behavior. And that's what I thought. So at 24, I found out about my real father from a cousin of mine. I will always be in debt to that cousin. Me and that cousin are still in contact. I will always be in debt to that cousin because had he not told me, um, I may have gone through life just feeling a little bit less than what I feel today. I feel really good about myself now, but at that time, if I had I not learned that, I would have thought that um, all that was said about me was true. So, um, anyway, I uh, I found out about my father, and then my my cousin, the same cousin, arranged it where he had a feeling he could find my father. Well, we found my uncle. And one thing led to another and found out and we found my father. My uncle was excited. I mean, just excited to see me. He thought that I didn't want anything to do with that side of the family because he hadn't heard, he hadn't seen me since I was a little boy. So when he met me at 24, he was like, I thought you guys, you, I thought you didn't want anything to do with you, me or your father. I was like, I didn't even know about you guys. I had no idea, <laughs> none whatsoever. Nobody mentioned it. Everybody in the family knew but me. I don't know how they kept that secret for 24 years, but they kept that secret for 24 years. And it crushed me. It didn't crush me because I found out. It crushed me because my mom was instrumental in keeping it from me. And my mom was my hero. My mom, I, I say this all the time, my mom was my first god. I'm telling you, my mom was my first God, so I didn't think my first God would keep something that vital from me. And she did, and that crushed me on the inside. I was walking around like a warrior, but on the inside, I was broken because I did I couldn't imagine my mom keeping that from me. And um, and I had gone through a lot of stuff. I had moved away to New York before I came back and found out. But um, and in New York, I felt like my stepfather, who I thought was my father at the time, wasn't proud of me. And I actually wanted to take my life. In fact, I tried to take my life with some pills. I didn't really want to take my life, I guess, because if I had wanted to take my life, I would have done it, I guess. But I attempted to look like I wanted to take my life because I thought this man wasn't proud of me. Now, what if I had been successful? <laughs> what if I had been successful um, and done that, never knowing that this man, this man wasn't my father? So having all that back... That backstory, when I met my uncle and he was all excited, I was excited to meet my dad. My uncle warned me. He said, now, Jeff, I'm going to tell you now, your father's response isn't going to be like my response. I'm like, what do you mean? He says, your father's just a different kind of guy. He's, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, I'm his brother. I've been around him all my life. I love him, but he's a different kind of guy. He's not going to give you the response that I'm giving you. So just be aware of that. And don't take it personally. It's just the way he is. So I said, okay. So when I finally met my father, uh, there was no emotion there. I was all excited. Um, but there was never any emotion. And, you know, for the next 20 years or however long it was, it was the same thing. I wrote him when he was locked up. I wrote him uh, when he was home. I, I went and saw him a few times. And it was never that emotion that my uncle gave me and I always thought man I wish my uncle was my father but not the way it worked out when my father died in 2015 and I called I was called I called him from um I was in Colombia uh South America and I called him and I don't know why 
I was just, in, I was so inspired by being in Colombia. It made me forget about all of the, um, the detachment that he had shown me. So I said, I'm going to try it one more time. And I called him and this is the same bland voice. How you doing? But you know, it was never, I didn't even feel right calling him dad. I called him Philip. And, um, yeah. And when I hung up the phone, I knew that was the last time that I was going to speak to my dad. I didn't know. I had no idea he was going to die later that year. I had no idea. It's just the way. And I didn't find that out until 2018. So he died in 2015. I think, yeah, 15 or 60. That's when, but I didn't find out until 2018. I happened to call his wife to check on him again. And that's when I found out. That's how I found out my father died. But I wrote this poem once I um, experienced my father for the first time and knew that I wasn't going to get the emotion. He wasn't going to feel that void that I had felt all those years because of the type of man he was. It's called Letter to, Letter to Father. They tried to destroy me in your absence, giving strong indications of my inward weakness, loaning me fragments of Jesus, but only the parts that blanketed me in shame. In your absence, the secrecy paid dividends to a bounty hunter who canvassed his portfolio with vulnerable souls, too young to flee and too impressionable to know better. So I developed a knack for crying and following the tears as they rolled down my face, splashed upon the concrete lying in wait about my shoes for family members sure to come. The trade winds of their contempt made sounds that your demons made impossible for you to hear. So I settled into nothingness while life moved without me. I, that innocent child who had, who in his land before time wanted no more than to feel a part of something, a part of you. But I, that result of misplaced passion, could not outscream your demons, nor could, I, could my downcast eyes look from the puddles around my feet long enough to catch flashes of you in my mirror. So I called another man father, who never called me son. But neither did you. So I gathered my baggage, lodged in a house of books to learn of other men's, other men who no doubt had their demons but taught me from a distance to appreciate the, appreciate the symbols called words swirling in my head. And from there, my window began to expand. I called for you, just not as often. Because these individuals who knew me no better than you left a part of themselves in the house of books and reminded me of the power I possessed, whether you called back or not. And my father never called me back from any calls I ever made, never. He never initiated anything. He never replied to letters that I wrote. Damn, he never he never did. And so Letter to Father um, was all about that. I was always hoping that we would have that because, well, I won't speak for all men. I'll speak for me. I won't speak for all people that go through that. But for me, once I found out about my father, it was a void. I felt a void as a child, but I didn't know why. But once I found out there was another man out there that was really, truly my biological father, there was that void. And I always wanted that father and son relationship. I had a couple of buddies in the, that I grew up with. Their fathers were such instrumental parts of their lives. And I never got that from my stepfather. So when I found out about my real father, I said, well, I'll make up for lost time. And me and my father will be we will be the father and son that we need to be, and it never happened. And so Letter to Father was that me kind of accepting that. And then I fell in love with books. Um, I got, you know, I, I read other people's stories. You know, it may not have been about their father, but hardships, whatever it was. 
and, and it inspired me because I see through their hardships, whatever it was they were going through, they found some way, some momentum to get through it and, you know, and to, and to persevere, basically, to persevere. And that's what we do. You know, that's what we do. I think that's why I'm a poet, you know. Um, so that's where it went. That's that's where it, um, that's where it led to. Led to my father. Sorry about the dogs barking in the back. Small dogs bark all the time, so I uh, I apologize for that. But I'm gonna keep on going. Um, so yeah, a lot of these, most of my poems, very few of my poems don't have a backstory. Very very seldom do I um, write something. Just I will sometimes, but most of the time it's um. I was in I, when I first moved back to LA in 2000. I think it was 2000. I didn't have a car, so I was on the bus. And my brother lived um, on 83rd in Vermont. And that's where I was staying for a while. So I ride the bus, and I remember this young sister coming on the bus with a baby. And the baby was walking, but, you know, hadn't been walking for a long time. So maybe the baby was a year and a half, two years, something like that. Right around there, but small. And... The way the mom spoke to the baby just bothered me, even though it wasn't my business. I'm wondering where that that baby is like 20 years old now. I'm wondering what what happened to that baby. But the baby was, I mean, the mother was so angry in her language towards such a small child. Like she was taking all the hostilities of the world out on this kid on the bus as they were getting on the bus. And like I said, this kid couldn't have been over, I know it wasn't over two, she probably is a little girl. She probably wasn't two yet, but she was walking because she walked on the bus with her mom. And this is what this is called bus ride. Sister, how can you speak to your seed in such a way? That beauty which sprang from your womb, that gift from the creator. How can something so full of love brings forth such hate filled words? My God, what caused this fall from grace? Was it a man who looked like me? who filled your world with such bitterness? If so, I apologize from the bottom of my heart for all of the brothers who create offspring and hate simultaneously. But back to that beautiful child who doesn't understand why you will fuck her up for reaching for you in a dirty bus full of strangers. Who is she supposed to reach for? Sister, under that distorted mask, I know your beauty resides. The world needs to see it. I need to see it. But more importantly, that precious child needs to see it. Uh Uh-oh. Here's my stop. Manchester and Vermont. I don't want to go back thousands of years to show you the queens in your lineage, but your face right now looks devoid of anything queenly. How sad. That's a bus ride. It broke my heart to hear this young girl, young lady, um, talking to her child in such a hateful, hateful way, you know. It's so sad when adults who are dealing with other adults take the feelings that those adults bring to them and sprinkle it on their children who have nothing to do with those adult problems. Nothing at all to do with those adult problems. But those that sprinkling of those problems on that child will negatively impact that child on down the road. That's the sad thing. You know, that's the sad thing. That's what bus, that's what bus stop was about for me. 
you know, and I've seen so much, you know, working, working with kids a lot, you see that, you know, I, and I've always said, I have no problem with people want to be irresponsible, um, live their life to the fullest, whatever that means, uh, party all the time, whatever they, whatever they want to do. I have no problem with that. It's not my business, you know, I, I, it's not my business, but what, what does bother me is when these people have children. That's the problem. When these people have children who are looking for some kind of guidance and have parents or sperm donors who don't see that, see the priority in those children. That's what I have a problem with. So that's what Bus Stop is all about. You know, I've seen it so much. I'm sure those of you out there can 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 attest to that. It's it's, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. It really is. Um, another thing um, that I wrote in here, and this is probably this is probably old news. This is probably old news, but I'm gonna I'm gonna recite it. <laughs> I have a problem with black people calling themselves niggas. I just do. I know that makes me old, kind of out of the you know out of the um, out of the hip. Thing, you know, and nobody's taking it really well. I can't say nobody, many people don't, it doesn't bother a lot of people, but it's always bothered me because of the stories that I would hear from my mom about the books, old books they would get, and the and the pages would be torn out. She grew up in Nagatouch, Louisiana. The pages would be torn out, and the pages that were left, these were old books that, from the white schools, they would tear out the pages, and, and the pages that they left in there, they would scroll nigger all through the all through the book because they know they were going to black kids in Nagatush. And so hearing those stories early, I just had a problem with black people calling themselves niggas, especially in front of people that were not black. I have a problem with that. So it doesn't make me cool, but I'm not on here to be cool. But I wrote this this book, I mean this, um, this poem called Challenge. And um, this is the way it goes. But that's the backdrop. That's the backdrop to challenge. Um, just being uncomfortable with that word in front of others. I just, yeah. Anyway, here we go. Challenge. Calling on all brothers and sisters who find strength in blackness, who find hope in blackness, who find pride in blackness. Niggas are not allowed. That whole mentality belongs in the room next door. Oh, you disagree with me? Convinced that that label has somehow become less problematic because it is an anthem that sells millions of records or is used by a couple of white boys towards one another? Well, fuck you. Because I've got great aunts and uncles still alive who remember vividly how the word stung the soul and tried to define a people. Well, some of us will not be defined or pigeonholed. It will never be a righteous word regardless of how many records sell or millionaires it creates. Those of us who truly love history will never become intimate with it. We will constantly pose the question what other group uses the words world stage to degrade itself through language. Language is supposed to build upon itself and build and build and build. It is never stagnant. There is nothing in nigger that denotes growth. It is dead, but we don't know it. I said it's dead, but we don't know it. It is dead, 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 but we are alive, my brothers and sisters. We are the sun breaking through the clouds. That rose petal amongst the thorns. Shit, we are that fantastic journey in this bleak-ass world. Oh, you don't agree with me? Well, imagine, if you will, this world or any other without you. 
without you. Without you. Hell, I like Mozart and ballet as much as anyone, but to endure that shit every day is a bit much. Do you agree with me? So I'm calling on all sisters and brothers. You are that shit, but not the stinky kind. Oh no, you are that classically trained, multi-talented, highly refined, cool-ass, dressing, slang, spewing, high-jumping, weight pumping, braid wearing, fast running, book reading, quick fighting, poetry creating, genius kind of shit. But you are not a nigga. No, you are not a nigga. Oh, you don't agree with me? Well, fuck you and your slave mentality. That's challenge. That's the backdrop. Um, that one probably won't be real popular, but it, it came, you know, I don't, I don't write things to be popular. I write things from the heart and whatever I feel. And that's what I feel about that word. It will never be cool to me. It will never be cool to me. I'll, I'll read one more and then let you all go. I appreciate your time. Um, I met this, um, I ride a motorcycle. Well, I did ride a motorcycle. It got stolen. <laughs> but I enjoyed riding motorcycles. I really enjoyed it. And I, I met this this guy, white, white dude named Brett. And um, just a cool dude. We met, my bike had broken down. I was coming out of the bank. I think I had to um, pay the tow guy or whatever. Um, the guy was towing my um, my bike. And this guy, Brett, was coming out at the same time. And he was looking at my bike. And like, wow, that's your bike, blah, blah, blah. And we got into a conversation. And um, just based on the bike, we developed a pretty cool relationship. And, you know, he would invite me to all these rides. And um, even though I'm from California, I really didn't know California. I, I know it a lot better now that I live here. But when I was growing up here, I knew certain spots and I knew Long Beach, Carson, Hawthorne, Compton, Watts, uh, Linwood. I only, but I really didn't know California. But I met Brett, and with this bike, I began to, California began to open up for me. I'm like, man, California is a beautiful state. I didn't even know. I just knew certain neighborhoods, you know? And that's so often the truth with many of us. Like, our our um, our rep, mode of reference is like a, 15 mile radius and we think that's the world you know but it's not and so when I started riding the motorcycle with Brett on his little rides with his friends people I didn't know but you know they kind of took me in and, and I was riding with them California opened up to me I'm like wow this is a beautiful state seriously not just the weather you know scenically it's a beautiful landscape wise it's a beautiful place so I wrote this poem um, for him and I think I gave him the book with the poem in it, right? And you know, big, big old dude, uh, biker. You know, so poetry ain't something that bikers be like, ah, oh, yeah. But I, he took it because I wrote it for him. He saw his name, like, wow, that's nice. But this is for Brett. Whether Brett appreciated it or not, I appreciated Brett for opening up California to me um, with us riding our motorcycles. It's called "There Are Those." There are those who stand above all that divides and stunts the growth of humanity. Those rare individuals having tastes of a universal beverage abstain from the murky waters of a mindset drunk with bias and prejudice and segregated freedoms. Once in a while, they are brought forth to subdue ignorance and wrath with courageousness, open-mindedness. They seem to see so well past color, past religion, past gender, past language, past nationality, 
past boats and cars and wineries and homeless shelters and sweaters and jackets and political leanings to the heart of the matter, which belong to the person who stands before them. Yes, there are those who come all too infrequently but give humankind something to aspire to. Without announcement or rally, they simply, simply because they see real people and not adjectives. For Biker Brett and all others like him, there are those. And that's been a few of my poems from this upcoming book called Equilibrium. I hope you, re- you enjoy them. Uh, I don't go over this and edit it, so all the little mistakes you hear... That's what you get. So, so you know, it's raw and unedited. I just like to do it that way because it's a real conversation. I feel like this is a real conversation. And in a real conversation, you don't hit the rewind button and do it perfectly. You just keep on rolling with it. And that's what I do with this podcast. So thank you for chiming in. I hope you got something out of it. The new book coming out is called, well, the old new book is it's called Equilibrium. It'll be out soon through Amazon. Look it up. Check it out. I hope you enjoy what you get. If you if you um, choose to, to buy it. If not, I hope you continue to chime in on Right Away Podcast. I got some interviews coming up. It's going to be off the chain. Take care. This is Jeffrey Martin, Right Away Podcast. Until next time, peace.